Just a little heads up. In this episode of White Wine Question Time, we talk in detail about miscarriage and child loss. If you've been affected by these topics, support is available from a number of charities. We recommend SANS at sans.org.uk or the Miscarriage Association at miscarriageassociation.org.uk. On with the episode. And welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is one of the smartest and most hardworking comedians around, a BAFTA-nominated presenter, actress and stand-up who's now taken her first steps as an author. She started her professional life as a classically trained musician after graduating from Oxford University, but found herself dipping her toes into improv comedy, becoming a founding member of the award-winning Ostentatious, an entirely improvised show in the style of a Jane Austen novel, which she's performed everywhere from the West End in London to Edinburgh's Fringe Festival. And having branched out into stand-up, she's also gone on to perform several sellout UK tours of her own. But it was the BBC's MASH report where she really turned heads with her hilarious sketches covering everything from political apologies to how not to sexually harass someone, clocking up tens of millions of views online and netting her a well-deserved BAFTA nomination in the process. Having recently married fellow comedian Marcus Brigstock, the pair welcomed their first child, Billy, last summer, just as she was putting the finishing touches to her first book, Advice from Strangers, a funny, cleverly written book that literally deep dives the advice that she garnered from the members of her audience. I can't wait to hear more about it. Let's dial her up. It's Rachel Paris. Good morning. Hello. Thank you for having me. No, it's too early for wine, sadly. It's, you know, Monday morning, 11am. Yeah, I've got a cup of tea on the go. Yeah, I'm on my fourth coffee. Don't judge. <laughs> yeah, so it, look, it looks like you're hiding away in the upper echelons of your home. Is this your is this your hideaway? This is this where the book came to life? Uh, it's the book was sort of written actually sort of at the kitchen table quite a lot or tucked away on a sofa somewhere uh, in the like you say in the later stages away from the baby uh, when I could. <laughs> um, but no, at the moment I am in our bedroom. So tell me about the book because. I know it was written predominantly in lockdown, but actually, as a concept, it started way ahead of that. This is something that you asked audiences to basically contribute towards. When was that? Yeah, like without knowing, I'd go on to write a book about it. So this was 2017. I did a comedy show. Uh, I got asked to go back to my old school to do one of those graduation speeches to the class. And I was petrified and nervous and didn't know what to say to them so I thought well I've got a year what I'll do is I'll do a comedy show where I ask the audience to suggest bits of life advice that I might be able to pass on to people in the speech and I collected them all on they wrote them on little bits of paper before every show and I would weave them into each show and then I kept them because they were lovely things to have, these little coloured scraps of paper with people's advice on. And I kept them in a cupboard long after I finished doing that show. And an amazing uh, kind of stunt to pull with your audience because, it, you know, as somebody that is, is, is really at home with improv, they're kind of writing the show for you as you go along because you just riff off the, off the back of their advice, right? Yeah, a lot of it. Like, I had... Uh, most of the show, the majority of the show was, you know, a written stand-up show with some musical comedy songs in. But yeah, quite a lot of it was off the back of what they were saying. And it, it means every show is completely different, you know, and it feels tailored to them. So it, yeah. was, it was a fun show. 
Well, well, yeah. I mean, I listen, I've really enjoyed reading aspects of the book because it's one of those great books that you can dive in and out of. And some chapters are really incredibly lighthearted and then others really, um, really pull you in with your level of honesty and confession. Um, so should we dive straight in, Rachel? Are you ready for your first yeah, question? Yeah, let's go for it. Yeah. So as we've just established, your book has been a long time in the making, gathered with love over sort of three years, really. Um, you cover everything from grief and the ridiculous to and everything that kind of sits in between. So what I wanted to know from you is of all of the pearls of wisdom that were imparted, what was the best, what was the worst, and what was the most useful that you've unearthed by way of wisdom from strangers? Ooh. Right. I think my favourite one was never let anyone stop you being shiny. I think that one was really nice and quite carefully worded because I thought the person who wrote it, it's not, it's not quite the same as uh, never let anyone get you down or don't listen, don't listen to the haters. You know, I think don't let anyone stop you being shiny is about don't let anyone any cynics kind of make you feel like you're being silly. You know, I think it feels to me it's about like not being afraid to look stupid and be absolutely joyful and find delight in things that aren't necessarily cool. So I really liked that one. And I think that's really important. But that's that's kind of inherently within you, isn't it? You are a bit of a show pony, you know, you are born yeah. to shine. You like being shiny. <laughs> it's what you do for a living. You've turned it into a profession. Yeah. But has there been a time in your life where you felt that somebody's taken the shine off you? Yes. I mean, a little bit of you dies every time you hear after a gig, oh, you were funny, but I don't like female comedians. Like that happens a surprising amount. <laughs> serious? Still. Are you serious? And People say that. Yeah. Like, Out loud. Like, like a lot. <laughs> Yeah, to you, because it's a compliment because they're saying we liked you, but generally oh, I see. women aren't funny. Well, thanks so much. And, <laughs> yeah, and you're like, oh, thanks for saying that. Um, you know, like th there's just little things that do that. And obviously like difficult gigs. And I didn't go into comedy for ages compared to a lot of comedians because I was trying to do other things that I failed at. <laughs> and <laughs> Like what? You know, that does take the shine off you. Like musical theatre. Like I tried to get into this amazing course at the Royal Academy of Music doing musical theatre and I auditioned two years in a row and got through to like a recall but didn't they didn't accept me. And like that was really like this the first thing I want from being a teenager, that was what I really wanted to do was musical theatre. Oh. And it was like that was the dream, really. So, you know, that process I was in my early twenties of like just reshaping, okay, look, maybe that's not what you're going to do. So just keep doing your jobs. I had just normal jobs, you oh, know. that's really rough though, isn't it? Because you've, got to, and you've got to suddenly develop plan B very quickly. And that is, yeah. that is what you'd work towards, isn't it? That was always your kind of, that was your, as far as you were concerned, raison d'etre in life. Yeah, like I always loved performing. Um, and I'd obviously, yeah, I'd done like more classical stuff and a bit of acting, but like, I did just think musical theatre. I still now, it's still the dream now. I'd love to do musical theatre. Uh, but then, and I didn't know that comedy was an option at that point. You know, it wasn't, I didn't know anyone who was a comedian. I didn't know it was a thing. So yeah, that was, that probably stopped me being shiny for a little yeah. while. Um, but then I just kept on working, kept on performing and comedy sort of found me in a way. I got sort of, <laughs> honestly, it's a series of accidents. Like someone signed me up for this comedy improv audition like she did it in secret 
and uh, my friend called Hannah. Um, and I went along and it was amazing. And I got into that troupe. So that was something that said yes to me. It was like, uh. yes, you think you can do comedy improv. And then I was speaking to a comedy promoter one night and she said, oh, I'm looking for a comedian to fill a slot. And I just lied. <laughs> I say it found me. I got it through lying. I said, I'm a comedian. <laughs> and she said, oh, well, you come along then. And it's a 20 minute slot and you come and do it. And I was like peeing my pants because I didn't know how to do comedy really but that was my first ever solo comedy gig and I just did funny songs and poems and stuff and it went really well so I just carried on doing it. So that was good advice what about the worst advice uh, that came by way of uh, the wisdom of strangers? Well I think that the idea of follow your dreams which I had written down more than once actually is not the great advice that it sounds like. Uh, I know everyone thinks of it as an ultimately incredibly positive, ambitious thing, but my experience has been that it's good to keep reevaluating what your dreams are because you change as a person and your skills change and the world changes. There might be, you know, jobs and careers and callings that you don't even know about. Like with me, comedy, I didn't know about comedy. I didn't know that that was an option. Whereas if you keep your eyes open for things you don't expect and be a bit open minded, then you can end up finding a dream later on that turns into your dream. Had anybody ever said to you, Rachel, you're hilarious. You should be a comedian. No, no. It was a real surprise when I went into comedy for everyone. Like I had, like, of course, like me and my friends, we all as a group thought that we were hilarious. But that's true of all groups yeah. of friends, isn't it? Like, and I think even now, even though I'm a comedian in my job, I'm not like the funniest one in my friendship groups still. So yeah, it's still it's still a bit of a mystery, to be fair. Still doesn't help as well the fact that you married a comedian. I mean, you're never going to be yeah. the funniest person in your house at <laughs> any given time, are you? I mean, there's always going to be fierce competition. <laughs> Absolutely. It's about 50-50 who's going to be the funniest. And then we've got the baby who's very funny as well. Have you been overwhelmed with advice from strangers regarding parenting? This is something we talked about recently with Kate Lawler, actually, is that very well intended as it is sometimes you have this sort of mountain of advice showered upon you and you just don't want it or need it. Yeah, um, I think friends were really good about not overloading me with advice that was unwanted. But I have found the internet like, you know, there's like apps and communities online that you can join, which when I was through pregnancy, especially, which I joined for advice and it was very confusing because there were so many different messages from incredibly opinionated people from all over the world saying different things about how to be pregnant, what you can and can't wear and do and eat and go. And in same in early motherhood about breastfeeding, about weaning, about, you know, how warm a baby should be and all of those things. There's so much conflicting advice out there that I think if I did it again, I would stay off of the Googles, actually, because it's not always that helpful. Yeah, it's not always that helpful because sometimes there's just so much information. You, you can't you can't filter it because you're also at that point popping with hormones, really tired and can't remember your own name most days, let alone the advice of strangers. Absolutely. <laughs> and what about the most useful advice that you garnered from the book, from audience members? Useful. Yeah. I think stuff tampons everywhere was quite good advice. 
because it's not just handy for you, but it's handy for uh, other women as well. I think little sort of practical things like that, like don't waste a hot second trying to fold a fitted sheet. That is such good advice. Do you know what? The only... Isn't I mean, it? It's like Kung Fu for one. It's ridiculous. It's like enormous origami. Like there's no need no. for... No, you're absolutely right. It's pointless, pointless, pointless. Great advice. I liked the spirit of marry a plumber. I feel like what they might have been saying was it's okay to have practicality in mind when you fall in love (laughs) as well. Yeah. I quite like that. Although you swerved that advice and married Um, a comedian. Yeah, but quite a practical comedian. Uh I feel like part of the reason that I fell in love with him was that I knew that he was, you know, he had two children already. He had, he was responsible. And I think I wanted someone responsible. And I think it wasn't a coincidence that I fell in love with someone who had, you know, responsibilities in life and was a good father already. So yeah, that made me, that made me think about that, that chapter. So there's some really nice little sage pearls of wisdom there. Scatter your tampons, try to marry somebody with some sort of skill set. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all very useful. Great stuff. Yeah, exactly. Okay, are you ready for your next question? Okay, my next question, question number two. You wrote incredibly movingly um, and with, I mean, what I can only describe as searingly painful honesty about your experiences of having um, a stillborn baby, your daughter, before you went on to to give birth Mm. to your son. Do you mind if I read a passage from your book so that I can give the listener a chance to understand just the kind of, the way that you wrote about what I think is every parent's worst nightmare? Yeah, that's fine. Uh, You say, when labour started, I was put in a special delivery room for exactly these circumstances. Until I was in there, Marcus wasn't allowed to come in. I asked the midwife if they could make an exception. Thankfully, they agreed, and Marcus came that night. The next two days were surreal, hard, powerful, painful, awful, intense, sad, loving. We were cocooned in this web of people whose job it is to be kind and extraordinary. Midwives, bereavement specialists, consultants and nurses quietly descended to explain comfort and help. Even at such a busy time, they never once made it seem like they were in a hurry. When Marcus went for a breath of fresh air, a midwife literally ran after him to show him an alternative route so he wouldn't have to walk through the maternity ward and hear the cries of healthy babies. When the baby came, we held hands and we cried. The midwife who'd been with us all day and who delivered the baby cried with us. I read that and I read that time and time again because every time I read it, my eyes were just blurred with tears, Rachel. But what overwhelmed me was the... Uh, the incredible kindness of strangers in the most profoundly difficult circumstances. And I just wondered if we could talk about how important that is. And uh, something for us to take away listening to this is never forget to extend a simple kindness because sometimes the power of it is, is immeasurable, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Like you say, it was really, you know, the darkest thing that we could have imagined. Um happening with our pregnancy although I've since heard of so many people being through that and and worse you know there's no hierarchy of pain but I must say later stillbirths you know really close to the birth I 
I don't know. I I can't imagine that. And it was it was a, such a sad and tragic thing that was happening. And I just couldn't get over how amazing the people in the hospital were. Um, right from the, she was a professor essentially, a, a doctor who was like a specialist in this area. But she came and spoke to me that night that we found out because I was in there for for a couple of weeks actually not knowing what the situation was going to be whether the baby would live or you'd, not you'd been in and out as well in so and you'd out had this, yeah you described the you know constantly as you write about this chapter hope and despair hope yeah. and despair and that yes. is the bookend of this experience isn't it one minute hope the next minute despair and nothing really that sat in between just those extreme emotions yeah that's it it was it was impossible to know which way it would go and even of course, like in any hospital, you were seeing different doctors and different midwives all the time. And even their attitude to these things, whether or not um, it, it almost irrelevant of what was happening, because we couldn't know, some of them were more positive and upbeat and some of them wanted to be more realistic for me. So it was, yeah, it was just hope and despair uh, on and on for for weeks, really. And then there was this one night where it became clear what was going to happen and it was going to happen soon. Um, and the baby couldn't make it. And the doctor who came that night was just so amazing. She just explained everything so clearly and so compassionately. And like I say, there was this special wing where once you were in that room, suddenly they sort of made sure that you had your own space and that everyone who came to us was just so, just so kind. And there was a midwife called Anna whose job it was, I don't know how she does her job, but it's her job to basically deal with parents in this circumstance. And it honestly, it was like having your mum there, you know, she was just absolutely able to just hold me when I was crying. And she was there the next day, you know, it wasn't just when it was happening, it was in the days afterwards. And they all, they all kept in touch with us, wow. you know, they were there all the time afterwards. And we're still sending her pictures of Billy now. She stayed with us all through the next oh, pregnancy, wow. both both the doctor and um, Anna, and we're still in touch with them now. And they really became friends because they they were with us in such a real way all the way through that. And she took so much, they both took so much joy over. Our next pregnancy obviously was very mm. anxious and we didn't know, they didn't know whether I'd be able to have a healthy baby. Um, so everyone was on the lookout for something going wrong. But we kept, <laughs> we kept, uh, like we, we were consulting with the main doctor all the way through it and she was incredible. And Anna, who it was no longer at all, at all her job to be in touch with us. We kept seeing her at the hospital and it really felt like I'm not a religious person, but there were moments where it felt like a sign, like an angel, because I did have another big, big scare halfway through oh. the pregnancy with Billy. And she just, she she was there and she wasn't meant to be there. She just saw Marcus in the corridor crying and she came to find me and we needed her most of all of everyone. We needed her so much that day and it was so scary. We thought it was all going to happen the same again. And she was there for us and just little things like that were like really amazing, <laughs> like really amazing. Heaven sent. Yeah, exactly. Oh, wow, Rachel, that's a lot to go through. To think that, yeah. you know, when, to put your, I mean, A, to go through it in the first place with your daughter, but then to experience yeah. it a second time around, that threat of it and knowing 
knowing what you did, that must have been yeah. a huge... I hadn't thought about that, actually, until telling you about that. I think I'd sort of, you know, when you have the baby, everything sort of disappears yeah. a bit about... But, yeah, it was It was not um, It was not an easy pregnancy, like, and that was... That was a really scary few days. They thought they thought my waters had broken at like it was at exactly twenty one weeks again, oh. and that he wouldn't that he wouldn't have survived if that had happened. So, yeah, that was awful again. Twenty one <laughs> um, weeks is exactly where you were before with your daughter. Yeah, yeah. And twenty eight weeks is when you can start to think, okay, this child can live outside of this me. Might be okay. Yeah, this might be yeah, okay. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I I, but, I had a, a premature baby, so I understand some of this, but oh, no, one, no, yeah. no, no, not at all. Yeah, but, it but was okay. I, I I also had you know a week in a room with the most amazing team of people that looked after me, and it was only when I left the room after I think three days that I realised I was in a bereavement suite. Oh, really? So I didn't know whether or not. I don't know if they thought that you know my chances were. Touch and go. That's I don't know. so interesting. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But um, there was an energy in that room, I'll tell you. So much pain must unfold un- between those walls, but I've never felt safer than in that room. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it is. It's like a cocoon. It is. Yeah. And it's, it's, not, mm. the, it's not the place, it's the people. It's the mm. support. It's the love. It's the no-nonsense practicality. It's the mm-hmm. hand on your shoulder when you think, I'm going to fall apart. You know, and it know. just keeps you upright. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? The kindness of strangers. I, I know. I couldn't get over um, the midwife who was with me when I gave birth to my daughter. Um, that you know, this this must happen. She must go through this quite often every day. And you have this idea about the midwives. This is their job, and they have to have a bit of a, you know, a. a hard shell to cope with it and everything but she was so emotional uh, about it not in an unprofessional way like she absolutely did everything that she needed to do and it was she cried with us you know when it happened she was she was so in it and so moved by it and so sensitive and soft with it you know that that really I found that really beautiful actually that she was still human. I don't know I don't know how she does her job. I don't know how you I don't know how you can be that sort of you know so involved um and so moved by it and still be able to carry on but what an extraordinary job she has and she did. Yeah. And it is that remarkable kindness of strangers isn't it? The stuff you never forget. Yeah, absolutely. That yeah. that makes those most difficult moments not quite bearable, but as bearable as you could possibly ever hope them to be. Absolutely. It must have been a really hard time for you as well, because obviously you're going through this with your husband, but he's already a father. Mm. So that's, you're, you're already having not a different experience because you're sharing experience, but your life experience is, is different at that point. Yeah, you're right. That was not, do you know what, actually not so much with that particular experience. I feel like that was so unexpected and shocking and of its own thing that I think we felt really so on the same page when that was really all happening that I think that that was a bit of a leveler really but actually uh trying for a baby and the pregnancy and early parenthood and I'm sure going ahead as well um ongoing parenthood yeah there it is different and it that's been that has been quite a big thing particularly I think trying for a baby and talking about that, the stakes are different, you know, because this is whether he will have another 
child or not. And for me, it's whether I will ever have any children or not, whether I will be a mother, but he's already a father. So that was, that was emotionally quite, there were some big talks around that where I was just trying to impress on him, like how much this, why I was so, oh, so invested in it. And so like, I suppose uptight and like how, how much it, it meant to me, like to, be a mother I couldn't imagine my life not being one um so yeah it's a good spot it was it was there were a lot of big conversations there has to be though doesn't there because you can't meet somebody who's already got two children who's been through years of parenting and you're completely you know inexperienced in that space and expect for you to have an equal footing around that you just can't it's just just impossible and you'll probably find it as you say all the way through because you know when you're a first-time mother I mean, I can only say that because I've only done it once, but you, it is also brand new and you kind of, you know, and then you've got this partner that's done it twice already. There's your, or again, different pages, same book, maybe. Is that a good way of explaining it? Yeah, absolutely. Like, of course, there's so much that's, that we're going through together mm. and equally. Um, but yeah, at the back of it is all, all like the baby stuff. And some of it was really positive, like because he wasn't um, in terms of having a newborn, how to hold him and change him and um, not being too. I think I think quite a lot of new fathers are a bit anxious about like how to hold the baby and not to hurt him and being very delicate and everything and how to get the clothes on without bending car his little seats, arm and all of that. All and that stuff, yeah. Car seats, all of that stuff. Like he knows how to do it and that was really nice. Um, but what I've had to work at is being um, confident and uh, imp- like impressing on him that I also... I'm learning and I know what I'm doing and that sometimes I'm right and like you know I'm the mother and even though I haven't done it before that actually you know I have maternal instincts and you know I can I can know how to do this as much as you do even though you've done it before so you know that's a little thing that is ongoing it's hard it's really hard because you know you're you, you, you butt heads regardless, uh, because, and you're so tired yeah. and niggly and narky, and you've been through a lot as well. And all of this happened, you know, both of your pregnancies it, were in lockdown. We were living through a global pandemic. You had to spend yeah. most of that time in hospital alone. Um, you know, yeah. it's inhumane when you think about it, you know, that experience and being separated mm. from the person that should be there at your side. Yeah, and it's it's hard like i mean marcus was he really was incredible through through all of that those difficult times like even though he wasn't allowed into the hospital he was there in every way he could be you know every minute like facetiming and on the phone just all the time um yeah he was absolutely amazing but it was the the being kept apart at a time you know i i couldn't help but look back on it just thinking like that time when I was losing the baby, when Marcus wasn't allowed to come and see me in hospital was when the pubs were open. Um, so people could go to the pub, but I wasn't allowed to have a partner be with me in my grief in the hospital. And it just, the priorities of what was happening just felt so skewed, you know, at that time. And I think it's things like that at the moment, you know, that people are <laughs> so, yeah, so angry. Totally right. You know, about 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 what what how the government handled it and what was going on there because everyone has a story around that time that is um 
so emotional to them and everyone knows what we were doing and it just blows it just blows my mind that people would you know take the mick of those rules when there were such big things happening in people's especially lives. when you're the ones that have created those rules drafted them and passed them in parliament yeah exactly exactly is yeah. it in times like this especially when you've got your own experiences that would inform the way you tell a story that you you'd like to be on the mass report creating virals that are really landing some salient points. <laughs> yeah, I would. There are there are times when it's like a huge national opinion like this, where it feels like it feels like the whole country really thinks that he should go. Even, you know, even staunch conservatives can see that what he's done, he's done a bad job and that he should go. And you really feel like, yeah, I do, I do, I wish we were I wish we were on air <laughs> during this bit. But who knows, you know, hopefully we'll see. Do you feel differently <laughs> about things like politics as well now that you're a mother? Because I found that it completely moved my dial in terms of the stuff that I reacted and, and the way I responded to things. I felt very strongly about things in a way I never had before. Yes, uh, I think I feel more, I feel more about everything. I feel uh, a little bit angrier and a little bit more emotional and more sympathetic to the people whose lives are affected by the decisions made um, by the government. And yeah, I think it just sort of turns the dial up to 11 yeah, a does. bit. Yeah, it has, particularly with, you know, issues like, you know, the free school meals and things like that, that are so directly about someone's children. And, you know, re attitudes to refugees, you know, when you see to be absolutely clear, I'm not saying you have to be a parent to understand no. the plight of refugees, of course. But for me personally, I do feel like my my own dial has certainly become, I just feel angrier about it than before. Yeah, even you feel things far more acutely. And I was angry yeah. before. Yeah, exactly. Well, you're really well placed to kind of, you know, keep leveraging those conversations and putting your anger into a really good place. Okay, are you ready for your final question? You got your start in comedy through improv and you still regularly perform um, improvised shows with ostentatious, making up an entire night's worth of material on the fly, which I think, you know, is incredible as a skill set. Your brain must move at a rate of knots. So I wanted to know how in your own life it's been helpful to think on your feet at that speed and improvise your way out of a tricky situation. Oh, that's a good question. Thanks. Um... <laughs> Well, I feel like really my career, and by my career, I don't just mean my performing career. I mean all of the jobs I've done leading up to it and during it. So like teaching piano and working in a shop and being a terrible cocktail waitress uh, in administration at various places. <laughs> like I think the way that I've operated my life and then also doing improv and musical comedy and little bits of acting that when I can um has it's made sense for an improviser to do it because I feel like I've improvised every little bit of work that I've done essentially like trying to go oh, I'll do this and this like my my day when I was like in my 20s would go like a sort of 
nine to five job, Monday to Friday, and then getting to somewhere like Mudshoot or Southall in London to teach someone the piano and then going to the other side of London to teach someone singing uh, and then going to a comedy gig somewhere else, uh, trying a way to like go and pick up my keyboard and write a bit of material in between all of that and then going home and then on the weekends doing like stagecoach teaching and then like doing a bit more writing and a bit more like it was it was so patched together and it still is even now like it's still a little bit of this a little bit of that all adding up to uh, a, a life and a career and I think that just being able to think on the fly has been a very practical sort of in a practical just going what now what now okay how can I make that work how can I make that work has been useful um, it's not, you know, the most sort of creative way, but like that is, it is, it has been important and it is the way that I think my life will always be. Well, you say it's not the most creative way, but it's actually what's kept you alive. It's kept you working and growing yeah. and progressing and spinning plates. Um, yeah, you know, that's, that's pretty impressive, Rachel. <laughs> that is, it's just like everyone, you know, I think, I think a lot of people, especially in performing have like ended up doing something like that, but it has been I think it was a, I think it was a really good practice for like how to live your life really in those days which was I didn't feel like I had much choice about it at the time but with hindsight it was useful because it was it makes you think on the fly all the time. Yeah. And actually, you know, you say you you had regular 9 to 5 jobs, obviously nothing that you really really wanted to do. I think sometimes no. having those jobs is really important the the crap ones, the ones that you don't want because it spurs you on to try for better, to find the job that you love rather than the one that just you grind through the week to pay the bills. Oh, totally. Yeah. I'm so, I'm so glad I had those jobs and I was lucky. They were quite, they were admin, but they were, they were interesting like admin jobs. And I also think you genuinely, you know how even now, even if you're, you know, in presenting or comedy or anything like that, you still have to do um, a hell of a lot of admin yeah. <laughs> to do those jobs, like in your general life. Like, they were good training for just, you know, the grind, the grind of like pursuing performing. Yeah, absolutely. But also I think sometimes, you know, I always say to my son, who's kind of coming up to his teenage years now, so it's time for him to start thinking about Saturday jobs. I want him to, yes. I want him to go out and have those experiences of taking the jobs that probably aren't the ones that you're going to do for the rest of your life to understand how important it is to strive for the ones that you do. So important. Yeah. So my stepkids are teenagers and yeah, we've had the same conversations of like, you know, you've, it's really important that you're not going to go straight into the dream job that you love. Like, and it would, you, in fact, you mustn't, <laughs> like you can't because <laughs> that'll ruin you as a person. You gotta, you gotta work your way up and learn what it is to just have to have to do some work because you need to work. Yeah. To strive and graft. Yeah. And contribute. Yeah. Yeah, contribute, earn some money. Yeah. Actually, that's probably uh, a role that you had to improvise because uh, you become a step parent and it's not like having a baby where you've got nine months to prep or you've been planning to have that family. It's it's inherited. How, how, how was that as a piece of improv? <laughs> that's, that's a really good answer of like what I've had to think of on the fly. Yeah, um, that has been like a completely unpredicted part of my life of course like so I just I fell in love with Marcus and I knew the kids already because me and Marcus have been friends so um you know I knew they were great kids and they knew me oh and they did that helped did help? a little bit would do yeah. it a bit weird like really Rachel 
it did help. I've spoke I've I've spoken to them about it, and they were like, "No, that helped." Because then, when we found out you were together, it was like, "Oh, good." Because <laughs> well, it helped on the condition that they liked me, and yeah. I think they did. Um, but yeah, it's it's just been a lesson in learning, really, and being patient and compromise for all of us. You know, them sort of having a stepmother, uh, having to share their family home with someone um and all of us you know there's a sort of there's an aspect of being a blended family that everyone's it there's it's a it's a little bit hard in different ways for everyone involved because they have no choice over this person who's come into their life and i have (laughs) i've got no choice over you know their lives over i can't you know i'm not their parent i can't have too much control in their lives and marcus wants everyone desperately to be just blissfully happy and for there to have to be no effort made. But of course, there is a hell of a lot of effort on everyone's part. It really has to be a big team effort to pull everything together. Um, and it's it's quite amazing when it works um, and also hard because it's, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's really difficult for everyone. Um, so, yeah, I think just I'm I'm a youngest child and I think that I grew up with kind of I suppose you know a classic becoming a performer as the youngest child with my needs and my wants kind of fairly at the forefront of my brain and being a stepmother has been it still is like a daily lesson in just going it's not all about you actually it's not all about you um, and it's not even about the person you love it's about some other kids who yeah. <laughs> you've got to put first and they're not yours so it's not instinct I think that's the difference it's not instinctive to do that if it's if it's your own kids of course you always put them first because it's your instinct to do so for me (laughs) I have to go I have to actively remember to do that um so it's good for me it's good for me how have they been with the arrival of a baby brother oh they've been great they've been great yeah um my stepdaughter especially is uh, a absolutely obsessed with him she loves him so much so he's very lucky he's very lucky to have this you know this intergeneration kind of looking after him really it's quite lovely that he's going to grow up with that and you're very lucky to have the babysitters yeah oh my god and just just the extra (laughs) pair of hands like can you watch him while I'm in the shower that stuff yeah yeah, absolutely. Yeah, every every little helps. Every little helps, doesn't it? Although this morning, even with th- three of us watching him at the same time, he still managed to clonk his head on the floor. So, <laughs> but isn't parenting just the greatest act of improvisation ever known to man? Oh my god, so much. Yeah, uh, every day is something new. Um, yeah, fun, fun, Im- like improv is. <laughs> the thing is, you read up on it furiously, and actually, once you be- you begin your parenting journey, which for many women, I I think certainly for me, I, that for me began in pregnancy. The more you learn, the the mm. more you realise you don't know. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, you think you've just got that bit, and then that thing's gone. You don't need to know it anymore because they've changed yeah. and they've moved on. I remember thinking that even like an obvious one is breastfeeding. That I feel like just as I got the hang of breastfeeding he kind of had moved on and we stopped breastfeeding. <laughs> and I was like, but I know how to do it now. <laughs> Took um, me ages. So annoying. Yeah. And I can see that I think he's going to go straight when he, you know, he's not doing either yet, but I feel like he's going to learn to crawl at the same time as he learns to walk. And it's like, oh, you put all that effort into crawling and now you're walking. And there's, there's just one thing after another. And I'm like, stop it. Stop 
growing up stay a little baby already or i already miss the little tiny baby i miss being able to like hold him in my arms now he's on the hip now he's like this a wriggler yeah yeah drinking every moment it does it goes so quickly and the more the years progress the faster it goes it's really unfair um thank you so much for talking to me today i've really enjoyed hearing all of your stories and deep diving some very odd but quite helpful advice from strangers gonna go and scatter some tampons (laughs) all over my house (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much rachel thank you very much A huge thank you to my guest, the wonderful Rachel Paris. Don't forget, you can grab her new book, Advice from Strangers, online or in all good bookshops now. And if you fancy more great chat with brilliant comedians, then take a look through our back catalogue. We've got episodes with the likes of Ellie Taylor, Keith Lemon, Russell Kane, Jenny Eclair, James A. Castor and Ed Gamble, Craig Charles, Griff Rhys-Jones, Kerry Godleyman and Daisy May Cooper, to name but a few. My huge thanks to you, as always, for listening, and to Ben Robbins and the Yahoo Studios team who produced the show with me. Editing on this episode is by Andy Angson, and our music comes courtesy of Andy Bell, whose solo material is out now, as well as his brilliant work with Ride and Oasis. You can find that wherever you get your music. We'll see you next Friday.